Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We come before the Lord to confess our sins next. It's Every, my custom every now and then to turn to the prodigal son story and read halfway through that and have that be our call to confession and then read the rest of it. Uh, it works quite well. Luke 15, verse 11. Hear God's word. A certain son, man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. Thus far the reading of God's word. All of us in some way are in the prodigal son's situation. We have, by our thoughts, our words, our deeds, rejected our Heavenly Father and gone off to try life on our own without Him. Since the whole world is His, that does not work out so well. Sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom for us to come to our senses, like with the prodigal son. It's interesting to note that it's His hunger that drives Him back to His Father. But when that happens, we return to God, we admit that we have gone against Him. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this word. We pray that you would help us to understand it. We thank you for the sacrament of baptism as we consider that this morning. Help us, Heavenly Father, uh, to appreciate and to improve upon our baptisms. We thank you for giving us this mark of identity in Christ. We thank you for him, and we ask that you would help us to love and to follow him more closely, more deeply, uh, because of our time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning we're going to baptize baby Harrison, as you heard in the prayer, and I thought I'd take a break from Nehemiah and focus on what baptism is all about, uh, how it relates to the gospel and how it's a sacrament that's meant for us and for our children. So that's my uh, goal. You see in the sermon outline, it's just three basic points. First, the gospel, and then baptism as a sacrament, and then baptism for our children last. So the gospel first. Usually I wind up talking about the gospel at the end of a, me- of a message. Today I'm starting there. Uh, and I want to start in Romans 1. That's an important passage that says that Uh, We suppress the truth about God because we are unrighteous. Uh, The truth is that God is there and God is not silent. A famous um, theologian of a generation ago, Francis Schaeffer, 
wrote a book with that title. He is there and he is not silent. He has spoken. And we, as sinful people, all insist that he is not there because we want to do our own thing. That's the basic reason. There are all kinds of ways to say this, and Scripture uses them all. Uh, Zechariah 3 puts it that we have dirty clothes on, or we're unclean. We're standing before God, and we're not fit to stand before God. So God takes the dirty clothes off and puts clean clothes on us, rich robes. Uh, The way Galatians 3 puts it at the beginning is that everything is imprisoned under God's law. Right? Or Romans also says the law makes it so that every mouth is stopped. We've got nothing to say. We have no excuse when we come to before God on the day that we die and stand before him. Our only plea will be Jesus Christ. What are we to do with our guilt before a holy God? I just gave you the answer, but last week we talked about Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon, right? When Peter says, the, the crowd there hears from Peter, that God sent his son Jesus to us, knowing as he sent Jesus, that we would reject Jesus, that we would kill him. And when we hear that God sent him to die for our sins, when we admit that we are sinners before God, When God proclaims to you, your sins are forgiven through Christ, when we understand that this Jesus rose from the dead and is alive now, reigning as king of the universe next to his father, then like in Acts 2, we're we're cut to the heart and we ask, what should we do? I haven't been living for Jesus like I should be. He is the living and reigning king. And God says in response, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's verse 38 of Acts 2. This is the gospel. That's the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. And it just cries out for a response. We have to return to God like the prodigal son did and say, I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It cries out for a response. We have to trust the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. It was for you he died. It was for you as you believe it. So we don't want to walk out of here without knowing our desperate need to be clean before God. The prodigal son knew that he was unclean before his father. He also knew he had to go back to his father. So don't walk out of here without knowing the only one who can make you clean. And that's Jesus. It's uh, described in many ways in different passages. We read in 1 Peter uh, 1 at the beginning of the prayer about uh, being redeemed not by gold and silver, but by the blood of Jesus. Right? Revelation 7 puts it another way. It uh, describes uh, the multitude in heaven who are... Um, Washed, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Right? So there you have the washing idea. And Zechariah 3, we saw the clean clothes idea. So one, way, one description, one metaphor that the Bible, that God gives us for his forgiveness is washing. And that takes us in, right into the next point, uh, and that's baptism. Baptism portrays gospel cleansing. Baptism has always been about washing, purifying. Uh, There were a lot of ritual washings in the Old Testament, and they're called baptisms in a few places. Hebrews 9, 10, Mark 7, 4. uh, They're baptisms 
washings, ritual washings. Sometimes you would uh, have a cup or a pitcher that was going to be used in temple service, and so you'd, you'd dip that in the basin. Or it, it talks even in Mark 7 about couches. And now, now you don't take a couch down to the river and immerse it in the river, right? They, they sprinkled the couches. So all, the, all those washings, sometimes it was an immersion wash, baptism, sometimes it was a sprinkling baptism back in the Old Testament as well. That's a whole another issue. Uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, God says that he's going to sprinkle the nations and give them a clean heart. Take away the heart of stone, give them a new heart. So he combines in, in two metaphors, he's talking about regeneration. He's going he's gonna to give people new life. And, and he talks about giving them a new heart and sprinkling them clean with, with water. So that's what baptism is. It's about washing. Uh, this comes out in our hymnody. I've been listening to some hymns about this again recently. We sing one of them. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Right? That's a washing metaphor there. Uh, another good one that I've been listening to, uh, the hymn goes like this. Beneath the sacred throne above I saw a river rise. The streams where peace and pardoning blood descended from the skies. I stood amazed and wondered when or why this ocean rose that wafts salvation down to man his traitors and his foes. Good, good language. That sacred flood from Jesus' veins was free to take away Mary's and Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. So that's the idea, the picture. And you, you see this, baptism is really, a, the sacraments both are, um, are signs that point to very basic uh, natural acts uh, in our human lives. Uh, eating at, at a table every day. The baptism is, is all about taking a bath, getting clean, right? After, you, uh, after you're done with a long, dirty job, you know, say you're mopping all the floors in the house or something like that, and you've been hot and sweaty for hours, and then you take a long, hot shower, and you come out refreshed and rejuvenated, right? That's a tiny bit of what it is to be purified by God, Baptism is a tiny picture like that. So baptism shows us gospel cleansing. And the Bible also describes the good news of the gospel as us being delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. Colossians 1, 13. Baptism is the initiation into God's kingdom, into his people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says, In one spirit we are baptized into one body. So we're baptized into this body of believers. We're initiated into a new thing. Baptism is a sign and seal that you've entered into a new relationship to God. Now that's where things start to get interesting. Our, our conversionist mentality tells us that that cannot happen to baby Harrison today. Right? How, how can Harrison enter into a new relationship with God? He's not even a month old. How can that be? Because we think that our relationship to people and to God is based on our conscious thoughts, on our repentance, on our faith. Now that is a big part of it, but when you're born as a girl with a few little brothers, 
There are some things about your relationship and your family that are already set. And you don't get to decide those things. Right? And you grow into that and you learn how to be a good sister and a good daughter. Not everything is decided by you about your life. And God wants it that way. So, so that you remember, so that we remember that we are not our own. We belong body and soul to Jesus. That's part of how God has set things up. So we baptize, uh, and, and it's an initiation into a new identity. Uh, it's union with Christ, Galatians 3.27 that we read. You're, whoever has uh, been baptized has put on Christ. You're baptized into Jesus. Uh, Romans 6 says it as well. We're baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. You're adopted into a new family. This is all kind of the same metaphor, right? Being initiated into a new group, into a, a new people of God. You're, you're one of them now. Your people are not the old Adam in his sinful nature anymore. Your people are Christ's people. You have a new family tree, a new family story. And so you start to read in the genealogy of your family in the book, and you learn about who you are. That's what's going on. Uh, one way to illustrate this idea of baptism as initiation, you, you've heard of this sometimes, right? You start a new job, and all of a sudden there's some crisis right away, and somebody next, in the next cubicle over will say, well, I guess you're getting baptized by fire, aren't you? That, that's what's going on. You just joined the team, and now it's, it's a baptism by fire. Well, the whole point is that it's a baptism because you just started. Baptism is an initiation. You're, you're starting with a new group. That's baptism. And this, this is a really important point. We, we don't emphasize baptism enough in the right way. We, we argue about infant baptism and the mode of baptism, and I'll do a little bit of that today. But the main point is identity and, and being washed clean. People today generally have no idea about their identity. That's what all this transgender stuff is all about. They're completely at sea, awash on the waves of their feelings, with nothing else to anchor them. But God gives us plenty of things to anchor us. He gives us his word. He gives us a family. He gives us baptism, church fellowship, all these things to anchor us so that we're stable and ready. But cynics just reject all of that and want to be, do life on their own. And when you do that, you find yourself awash with nothing to, to moor and to guide you. The cynics call all that a crutch. And it's, it's, yeah, it's silly to use a crutch when you can walk on your own, of course, right? But the question is, can we walk on our own? And ever since Darwin and Marx and Freud and Nietzsche and the rest have been insisting that we can walk on our own, we've been slaughtering each other and even our own babies at an unprecedented rate because we've come unhinged, literally. Do we really need God? Do we really need something outside of ourselves to anchor our identity, our morality? You bet we do. And God has graciously given it to us. And baptism is one of those things. You are God's child, washed clean by Jesus, renewed daily by the Holy Spirit. Those are things baptism points us to. 
Well, let's talk about what baptism does as a sacrament a minute. 1 Corinthians 10 we read, where uh, Paul points us back to the Old Testament and uses Israel as an example. He says, remember all those Israelites who went through the Red Sea? They were baptized into Moses, he says. They drank from the rock that was Christ. So what's going on here is he's pointing out that there's an objective connection with Christ in the sacraments. All those Israelites were baptized into Moses. They weren't all saved. Not every one of them went to heaven. Many of them, most of them, fell in the desert in rebellion. So it may turn out that the objective connection, the being baptized into Moses, it may turn out that that connection is a curse. It's a curse for those who reject him. And that's important to think about in the sacraments. And when we come to the Lord's table every week, our emphasis is on the joy of feasting fellowship with God. But we do not forget that the table can bring covenant curses on those who partake unworthily. Those who go on sinning up a storm and they just don't care. It's the same at the font in baptism. The emphasis is the new life, physical and spiritual. But covenant blessings and curses are proclaimed, are at work. The whole gist of 1 Corinthians 10 is, hey, you can be baptized and still fall into rebellion against God and be eternally lost. Take heed lest you fall, verse 12. But God always gives you a way out of that temptation, even though many go there anyway. That's 1 Corinthians 10 about baptism. So baptism doesn't automatically wipe away guilt for sin, as some think. But it is a sign of that. Just like at the table, as we eat and drink, we really believe God is feeding us spiritually by our union with Christ. Same thing at the font. We really believe that God looks on this child as his own in favor. And that's, that's happening not because of the physical thing that we're doing. It, that's true because of God's promises in his word. Right, But we, we do what's called, uh, use sacramental language. We do it because the Bible does it, and we follow along. We, we connect the spiritual reality to the physical sign. Right In John 6, Jesus does this. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, if you don't, you don't have life in you. Right? 1 Peter 3, baptism saves you. Uh, the Nicene Creed, says, we say every week, says one, we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Right? That comes straight out of Acts 2.37. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Now, it's not that the physical act of baptism really does forgive sins. But we're using the sacramental language. We're connecting the physical thing with the spiritual thing. But God wants us to see our cleansing in the act of baptism. That's the point. God wants us to think more broadly in, of, of your life of faith. God wants you to show spiritual realities that he creates in our lives. He wants us to show those realities physically in the world. Right? Sacraments are, are kind of the foundation starting block of that. But it goes into everything. Right? You've been forgiven by Christ's work on the cross. So you forgive your brother and your parents and your friends. And you treat them differently and more charitably than you would otherwise. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, you submit to your husband because of the spiritual reality that the church submits to Christ as her head and Lord. 
These are all things that we do physically in life as, as patterns of life because there's a spiritual reality underpinning it. That's what sacraments are all about. We're doing this physical thing to mimic or to act out what we believe God is doing or has already done or is going to do. Right? The timing isn't always the same, the spiritual reality and the physical sacrament. But God's design is that the physical thing be connected to it. So when we baptize Harrison, when we take the Lord's Supper every week, we're not just thinking about the spiritual meaning while we do the physical act. That's part of it. But when it works like it's supposed to, there's a real connection between the two. That's, that's the idea. Think about when someone converts to Christianity, for example. They read an article and they believe. Or they hear a sermon. Or they talk with a friend. Right? None of those physical things uh, are what changes their hearts, right? God changes our heart. And yet, God wants to use those physical things in the process. He wants to use that friend who talks with you to change your heart, right? So it isn't off base to say, as we sometimes say, wow, Charles Spurgeon, man, he converted thousands of people. That's not totally wrong, even though in reality, only God ultimately converts people, right? It, we do the same thing with sacraments. We think the same way. The Lord's Supper feeds you spiritually. Well, really, come on. Only God can really feed us spiritually. Well, yes, but if we keep emphasizing that, if we keep downplaying the physical thing that God has given to you, then we ignore the very thing God has given us to feed us. You see the catch-22 there. And again, we have scriptural warrant for this. The Bible talks all over the place about the physical thing doing the spiritual thing. And that's a sacramental way of speaking. You know, the baptism saves you one, and 1 Peter 3 is the classic example of that. There's the qualifier in the verse right after, that not the physical washing away of dirt, but the cleansing of a pure conscience. So we have these... these uh, physical uh, acts uh, as sacraments that convey, that depict spiritual realities. Well, uh, need to move on and let's consider also why aren't, aren't we waiting until Harrison is older and can profess his faith before we baptize him? Uh, the objection is often raised at this point. Look, there's no examples in the New Testament of infant baptism. So why do we do this? Well, it's true, there's no examples in the New Testament of this. There are also no examples in the New Testament of the children of believers needing to profess faith before being baptized. That's never described either. And that's never brought up or mentioned. You never have a, a, an example of a child of believing parents who's withheld from being baptized. Uh, in the Old Testament, circumcision was the covenant sign, like baptism is now. And God commanded it to be given to infants. So when God comes to Abraham with a new covenant promise in uh, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, uh, Abraham's faith meant uh, responding by him and all, his, all the males in his family being circumcised. And so when you come to Acts 2, the Pentecost sermon, the situation is the same. When God comes to Jew and Gentile, with a new covenant promise fulfilled in Christ, our faith makes us descendants of Abraham, 
That's not a coincidence that Galatians 3.29 mentions baptism and then being descendants of Abraham and within two verses. We're, we're descendants of Abraham, and so we respond like Abraham did. And, and ev- us and everyone in our household is baptized. That's what happens. In Acts, when household baptisms are not mentioned, the people baptized are almost always far away from their households. They're at the Pentecost feast, far from home. It's the Ethiopian eunuch who's going back home to Ethiopia. So they're baptized, of course. Uh, Their household isn't mentioned because it's not there. And it's the same word in Genesis 12. Circumcise everyone in your house, Abraham. And so in Acts with the Philippian jailer and Lydia, repent, believe, be baptized, you and everyone in your house. Israel had to provide enough Passover lamb for the whole family. That's another example. The, the Passover uh, in the Old Testament now translates to the Lord's Supper in the New. And the blood on the door made the angel pass by for the whole house. So I'm making the case here, of course, for infant baptism. The, the Credo Baptist sees a change in how things are done in the New Testament. And that's because in Acts you see only baptism uh, after the people profess faith and believe. And that's true. But again, it ignores household baptisms. And the point of those isn't that we can assume that there was an infant in one of those somewhere. The point is, God still deals covenantally with families. Just like he did with Abraham. And the sign of the covenant is given to everyone in the family. So, uh, again, the objection is, there's no mention of this in the New Testament. So we should not baptize uh, children. I just want to point out that that's also a bad rule of thumb to go by, because if we can't do things that aren't mentioned in the New Testament, then we can't do a lot of things. We can't have musical instruments in church. They're not mentioned in the New Testament. We can't have women take communion. That's not mentioned in the New Testament. It's, It's a bad rule of thumb. We need to extrapolate principles from the whole Bible. Now, if there's a new principle... The Cradle Baptist will say there's a new principle, that we, that we stop giving the covenant sign to children until they can profess faith on their own. Well, I'm going to need to see more than just the pattern in Acts, because I, as I just explained, I see the pattern in Acts quite differently. Whenever we take the gospel to a new place, we don't baptize anyone until they believe. And that's what they were doing in Acts. And, that's, and as new believers read the Hebrew scriptures, they would uh, make the covenant connection of circumcision for their children. And they hear Paul tell the Colossians, if you've been baptized, then you've been circumcised. You don't need circumcision. That was the old covenant sign. Baptism replaces that. So we apply a new sign. But it's the same covenant, now fulfilled, the same pattern of giving the sign to the household. Well, I'll get off this point, but just to say, uh, this is a, a contentious point in the church, I realize. Some of us here disagree and hold the cradle position. Now, that's fine. It, I went on uh, about this for a while, but please know, uh, we seek charity with our cradle Baptist brothers and sisters in the Lord on this. Uh, we're going to teach what we think the Bible says, of course, but the issue isn't one that should uh, divide us, one that has to. Uh, the cradle Baptist view is plausible, uh, I would say. Uh, membership with us should be easy and without any lingering tension over that uh, as well. But to bring it back uh, into a close to the gospel, uh, there are any number of things that every one of us here is wrong about. And 
you know, somebody here is wrong about infant baptism and somebody's right, right? R.C. Sproul liked to say that. Somebody's wrong here. But that doesn't make it a, a sin issue because we're both seeking the scriptures over this. And that's a gospel point to reconsider. God does not accept us because we have the right opinions about everything. That's something very important to keep in mind. I'm going to say it again. God does not accept us because we have the right opinions about everything. Now, he does accept us because we submit to the son that he sent, Jesus. So you could say it technically in one way, okay, God accepts us because we have the right opinion about Jesus. But that's not quite the right way to put it because it's not just having an opinion about Jesus. It's submitting to him, giving your life to him, right? We believe Jesus is Lord. He's, uh, he died, he was risen, and he is reigning over all things, living today. Jesus is the gospel. The baptism is a picture of the gospel. And we wash our sins away clean in the blood of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you give us so many gifts. You've given us your word. You've given us uh, baptism, uh, the table. You've given us fellowship together. You've given us uh, prayer, a way to speak to you as we hear you speak in your word. You've given us uh, music uh, with which to praise you uh, here. You've uh, richly blessed us. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would remind us of all of these blessings as we baptize Harrison, that you would uh, show us uh, your grace, uh, your cleansing uh, in our lives once again. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word. And we sing now as he taught us to pray. communion, an exhortation from Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. It's a wonderful invitation from Isaiah, and it made me think of uh, Narnia. And when Jill Pohl meets Aslan at the beginning of the silver chair, I wanted to just read parts of that for you as well. She encounters Aslan sitting at a stream uh, at the uh, gateway to Narnia. And he says to her, if you're thirsty... You may drink. And she's scared. And the voice says again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Are you not thirsty? Says the lion. And Jill said, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. But Jill said, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And the lion couldn't move, wouldn't move. The delicious rippling noise of the stream that was driving her nearly frantic. Jill said, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? 
I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. She said, do you eat girls? And Aslan said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. He didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, or if it were, as if it were angry. He just said it. Jill said, I dare not come and drink. And the lion said, then you, then you will die of thirst. And Jill said, oh dear. And she came another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. The lion said, there is no other stream. People of God, come to the waters. Come buy and eat without price this bread and wine. Come to Jesus and have your sins be washed away. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.